Our scripture this morning is John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57. John eleven forty five. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to, Jer to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray once more <clears throat> and ask for God's blessing as the word is preached. Father, we confess that we are incredibly dependent upon you to work in our hearts and lives. Lord, I confess that nothing good will happen this morning unless you send your spirit to give us the gift of understanding. Lord, I pray that you would guard my lips. Help me only say what is true, what is edifying, and what will honor your great name. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. It was a beautiful fall morning in St. Louis. Around 9.31-ish, a student burst into our Hebrew class at Covenant Theological Seminary and said in a loud voice, an airplane just flew into one of the Twin Towers. It's about to collapse at any moment. Right after class, 20 of us ran across campus and all shoved ourselves into a small apartment and our eyes were glued to the television for the next three hours as we watched those horrific events unfold. When the hijackers brought down the Twin Towers, nearly 3,000 Americans lost their lives, making this the greatest act of terror on U.S. soil in U.S. history. And the question is, how did the world respond to these incredibly violent and tragic events? Well, most sane people were horrified by the carnage and the violence and the loss of life. That was one response. Yet surprisingly, others responded with shouts of joy as they burned American flags in Muslim streets in the Middle East. Two very different, diametrically opposed responses to the exact same historical event. Why? How do we explain this? There are often a variety of responses to significant historical events in world history. And that brings us to our text. In last week's text, Jesus performed 
an incredible miracle. He spoke the words, and Lazarus was risen from the grave. And you would think that everyone would rejoice because this guy Lazarus, who was dead, is now alive. And a lot of folks did rejoice. That was one response. But other people wanted to kill Jesus for raising someone from the dead. And this is typical of what happens in world history. There are often diametrically opposed responses to Jesus and the things that he does. And in this particular passage at the end of John 11, we see three distinct responses to Jesus. There is a believing response, there is a dismissive response, and there's a hostile response. And as we uh, learn from this passage, we're meant to ask ourselves the question, which response best describes us? Do you believe in Christ? Do you dismiss Christ? Or are you hostile to Christ? Let's look at these three responses in more detail. First is the believing response. Why did some believe? Because they saw the evidence. Look with me at verse 45 of John chapter 11. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, that is, in Jesus. These people were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Lazarus. In other words, they heard Jesus utter the words, Lazarus, come out. And to their great amazement and surprise and shock, Lazarus, who was dead for four days, walked out of the grave, fully alive, wrapped in grave clothes. They saw the evidence with their own eyes. They heard Jesus utter the words, then they saw the results. Lazarus was risen from the grave. And the resurrection of Lazarus convinced them that Jesus was who he said he was. Remember, this is one of the signs in John's gospel proving that Jesus is, in fact, divine, the Son of God, and is worthy of all of our trust, worship, and respect. And this is just the tip of the iceberg in John's gospel, that Jesus is divine. There are mountains and mountains and mountains of evidence in John's gospel alone that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. He is divine. And hopefully you see the evidence and you believe. And verse 45 says that many Jews believed in Jesus as a result of the evidence. Now, contrary to popular opinion, Christians don't resort to faith because they lack evidence. The exact opposite is true. As Christians, we believe in the Christian worldview because of the evidence, not despite the evidence. Over and over again, we see in the New Testament the apostles pleading with a lost and dying world to explore the claims of Christ and to look at the evidence specifically for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's just, again, the tip of the iceberg. There is there uh, is mountains and mountains of evidence for Christ's truth claims. There's the evidence of fulfilled prophecy, literally hundreds of fulfilled prophecies. Uh, the evidence of answered prayers in probably your lives and my life. Uh, the evidence of miracles performed in Jesus' name. You should all read the book by Lee Strobel, The Case for Miracles. He lays out literally hundreds of examples of miracles performed in the last 20 or 30 years, verified by medical doctors, incredible miracles of people rising from the grave in the name of Jesus. Evidence 
for the Christian worldview. There's the evidence of changed lives. There's the evidence of spiritual warfare. I'm sure many of you, like me, have seen with your own eyes exorcisms, demons cast out of people. When you see that, you tend to believe that there is a spiritual realm. There's the evidence of Christianity's effect on the world. Jesus' followers, by far, have done more good for the world than any other religious group. If you don't believe me, read the book Jesus Skeptic, where the author argues that Christians have done the most good for humanity compared to any other group in the history of the world. And there's much more evidence. We should believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world because of the evidence, specifically the evidence of the eyewitness testimonies in the Bible. When I was in fifth grade, Steve Largent was my hero. Why? Because Steve Largent was a receiver for the Seahawks, and he was slow, and he was short, and so was I. So I thought, there's a chance. He played, uh, he, he wore number 80 on his jersey. And during college, he was good, but everyone thought he's way too small and way too slow to have any kind of success in the NFL. And he proved everyone wrong. When he retired, he was the greatest receiver in the history of the NFL. At the time of his retirement, he held six career receiving records, most receptions, most consecutive games with a reception, most yards on receptions, most touchdowns on receptions, most seasons with 50 or more receptions, and most seasons with 1,000 yards or more on receptions. Now, I know he retired a long time ago, but when he retired, he was a big deal. He's in the Hall of Fame. When I was in fifth grade, I wrote Steve Largent a letter. And he wrote me back. And I still have that letter, although I couldn't find it this morning. <laughs> but I know I have it somewhere. Now, maybe you're thinking, Dave, that's quite a claim. Do you really have a letter from Steve Largent, who's in the Hall of Fame? Do you really possess that letter? Yes. And if I could show it to you, if I could have found it this morning, you'd believe me. Why? because you saw the evidence with your own eyes. Eyewitness evidence, eyewitness testimony. Again, we are not asked to believe Christian truth claims on blind faith. We're asked to believe because of the evidence. And all these people in the story saw with their own eyes Lazarus rise from the grave because of the power of the words of Jesus Christ. And because of that evidence, they believed. And the whole point of the Gospel of John, John 20, 31, is that you and I would read this Gospel, see the evidence, and believe. And John says that in believing, we will experience life in Christ's name. If you want to experience life, real life, resurrection life, eternal life, abundant life, it's found in believing in Jesus Christ. But sadly, not everyone believed in this story. There was the believing response, but there was also a dismissive response, which brings us to the second group of people that respond to the spectacular event of Christ raising Lazarus from the grave. Well, what did some dismiss? And the answer is the evidence. Look with me at verse 46 and 47. 
But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Remarkably, these religious leaders acknowledge that Jesus has supernatural power to raise the dead. Even their word choice is remarkable. They use the word sign or semion in Greek. And this word means an event which is regarded as having some special meaning, something which points to a reality with even greater significance. They acknowledge that the works of Jesus were so remarkable that they must point to something greater, that he must be divine. Yet they refuse to follow the evidence where it leads. Now their dismissal of this evidence is even more shocking when we consider who these people are. These men are the PhDs in New Testament or Old Testament or the systematic theology of the day. They are the reverend doctors. They are the most revered, most respected people in Jewish society. They're the religious experts. They know the Old Testament really, really well. They probably began this meeting with prayer. Yet they're all blind to the glory of Christ. And they're dismissing the clear evidence about Christ. Which very, very, very soberly proves that you can be a very religious person and be lost. You can know all the facts about Christianity and be ignorant of its truth. You can say all the right things and be blind to the glory of King Jesus. That's sobering, isn't it? Well, why? Why did these religious leaders dismiss the evidence so casually? They saw the evidence. They agreed that it was evidence. So why did they dismiss it? Because they feared losing control. Look with me at verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place, probably a reference to their place of power, and our nation, probably a reference to the freedom Jews had to worship their own God. What does this verse mean exactly? The religious leaders were terrified that the masses would believe in Jesus because he just rose a dead guy from the grave, a legitimate fear. They then reasoned that these new converts would turn into a violent mob. And the Romans would have no choice but to come in and to suppress this mob with more violence. And because the mob and the leaders were all Jews, they would associate them all in the same group. And they would all be oppressed and crushed. And the leaders would lose their control and their influence. These Jews were terrified of losing control of their power. They were terrified of losing control of their place in society. They were terrified that Jesus' followers would bring down the wrath of Rome on them. In other words, if Christ was who he said he was, it would make their lives difficult. And they would lose control of their lives. As a result, they very conveniently dismiss the evidence that they clearly see for Christ's divinity. And this still happens all the time. 
People dismiss the evidence for Christ's divinity because they want to maintain control of their lives. Many of you are familiar with Timothy Keller. He was a pastor in New York for three decades, planted his church in the early 90s, and it exploded, became a megachurch. And the church attracted lots and lots of young adults there to make their mark in New York City. And young adults would often come to him and say, Dr. Keller, I'd love to meet with you and talk about some of the doubts I'm having about Christianity. They'd set up a time to meet over coffee at Starbucks somewhere in downtown Manhattan. And the young adult would say to Pastor Timothy Keller, Dr. Keller, I'm having more and more doubts about the truth claims of Christianity. And he would immediately say to them, who are you sleeping with? Now, why would he say that? Because this conversation happened so many times with these young adults, he knew what was happening. They came to New York with Christian convictions and began to date someone who was not a Christian and began to sleep with them. And because of that, they all of a sudden had all these doubts about Christianity's truthfulness. The reality was they loved their sin more than the evidence. They saw the evidence, but they suppressed it because they wanted to sleep with their boyfriend or girlfriend. They were afraid that if Christianity was true, they would lose control of their lives, which is exactly what happens. When you become a Christian, you do lose control of your lives. You give control to King Jesus. Lack of evidence is rarely the issue. The leaders had plenty of evidence for the deity of Jesus, but they did not want to believe because if they did, they would lose control of their lives. Maybe you're thinking right now, if I follow Jesus, I'll lose control of my finances since God tells us to give generously to those in need and to the church of Jesus Christ. Or, if I follow Jesus, I can't drink to excess anymore. Or if I follow Jesus, I can no longer watch whatever I want to watch on Amazon Prime or Netflix. Or I can't hold on to my bitterness anymore. Or I'll have to pay my taxes, stop lying on my expense reports, and stop complaining about my boss. Or I'll need to come to church on Sunday mornings most of the time. Or, I'll need to let other Christians into my life and express my weaknesses to them and to ask them for help and for prayer. Or, I'll have to start working really hard at taking up my cross and loving and serving and forgiving my spouse or my siblings or my roommates. And maybe you're thinking right now, Dave, I'm not dismissing the evidence about Jesus. I'm a Christian. I believe the evidence. But if there's an area of your life right now that you refuse to give over to Jesus, that you're holding on to, functionally, you are dismissing the evidence for Christ's deity. Are you living functionally like he's divine, like he's God? If he is God, if he is divine, then we must give all control of our lives to him. Now here's the good news. 
following Jesus is, on one hand, incredibly hard. At the same time, those who follow Jesus experience the most joy, the most contentment, the most delight, and that joy is not based on income, possessions, or sunny vacations on beaches. I always tell my boys, boys, sin always leads to sadness, and holiness always leads to happiness. If you want to experience true joy and peace in this life, you must submit complete control of your life to Jesus. That's what he demands. And by the way, he's king of kings and lord of lords. He's divine. He has the power to raise dead people from the grave. He's worthy of our submission and our love and our wonder and our praise. So many people think, I'm willing to trade 90 years of fleeting pleasure for eternity in paradise. <laughs> what an awful trade. Really? 90 years of your short life, living for yourself, living for sin, you're willing to exchange that? for billions and billions of years in the presence of King Jesus? I'm not very good at math, but that's an awful trade. Submit to Jesus. Live for his glory. That's what it means to be a Christian. Now, I know that all of us at times hold on to things too tightly. We don't give Christ control. And that's why he died on the cross, to forgive us. There's hope and there's grace and there's mercy for Christians who are struggling to follow Jesus. But the point is, do you want to follow him? Do you want to give him control of your life? The dismissive response is a fatal response that has eternal consequences. But so is the next one, which brings us to the third and final group. There's the believing response, there's the dismissive response, and there is the hostile response. Look with me at John 11, 49 to 50. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them in a very proud, sarcastic way, you know nothing at all. In other words, you're a bunch of idiots. Caiaphas was a very arrogant man. Verse 50. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas was the high priest, which meant that he was the leader of all the religious leaders of Israel. He was a highly educated, highly respected, highly intelligent, ruthless, condescending person. And amazingly, God uses Caiaphas' hostile response to Jesus to save billions of people. How? Let's keep reading. John eleven fifty one 51 and following. He, that is Caiaphas, did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him 
to death. Now, the Old Testament teaches that it's the job of the high priest to speak to the people on behalf of God. Caiaphas very unwittingly and unknowingly spoke on behalf of God to the people of Israel in this moment. He prophesied that Jesus would die, quote, for the nation and the children of God who are scattered abroad. But why did Jesus die? Many folks are confused on this really important point. Imagine for a moment standing on the very edge of a 700-foot cliff, somewhere on the edge of the Grand Canyon. As you're standing there admiring the exquisite view of the Grand Canyon, you hear the sound of someone sprinting towards you from behind you. They're getting closer and closer and closer. You turn around and in a flash, this person who's sprinting towards you sprints right by you and jumps off the cliff to their death. And as they jump, they yell to you, I'm dying for you because I love you. You would think, what in the world? <laughs> this person is nuts. What is their death right here now have to do with me? I wasn't about to jump. I'm not about to die. Why did this person think that his suicide, his death, has any effect on me? That's how many people think when they hear that Jesus loved you so much that he died for you 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross. They think, I wasn't about to die on a cross. That was 2,000 years ago. I'm still alive. What does that have to do with me in the here and now? Which raises the question again, why did Jesus die? There's a key word that's easy to overlook in Caiaphas's prophecy, John 11:50, and John's interpretation of it, 51 and 52, it's the word, the small word, the incredibly important word, for. You can also use the phrase in place of or the phrase on behalf of. Jesus died for or in the place of someone else, which implies very, very strongly that you and I all deserve to die because of our sins. And if you don't believe that or embrace that, you are never, ever, ever going to be amazed by God's grace. The Bible very clearly says, Romans 6.23, the penalty for sin is death. Every time we sin, we deserve to die. Well, that's awfully harsh, Dave. We have no comprehension of how incredibly holy and perfect and righteous and just God is. And because of our sins, we deserve to die. But on the cross, Jesus died for us, in our place, taking the penalty for all of our sins. Past, present, future, thoughts, words, and deeds, the guilt for all those sins was placed on Jesus. He gets punished and you go free. Well, Dave, why can't God just forgive? Why the punishment? It's a great question. Even when you and I sin against each other, often someone still has to fix what was broken. For instance, if I go out this afternoon and take a baseball bat to your car 
which I'm not going to do, don't worry. But if I smash your car, smash your windows, smash your lights, smash your doors, and then I say, you know what, I'm really sorry, would you forgive me? I'm sure you'd probably forgive me because you're also godly. But then I'm sure you would all say to me, Dave, I forgive you, but can you please fix my car? Someone has to fix the car. In a similar sense, God says, I'm going to forgive you, and I can forgive you because someone else paid the penalty for all your sins. Therefore, you can be forgiven. Jesus died in our place for us on our behalf. Now, in Charles Dickens' epic novel, A Tale of Two Cities, two men, Charles Darnay and Sidney Carton, love the same woman, Lucy Manet. But Lucy chooses Charles, not Sidney. Later, during the French Revolution, Charles is thrown in prison for a crime he does not commit, and he awaits execution from the guillotine. And Lucy, as you can imagine, is totally distraught because the love of her life is about to die. Now, Sidney, who strongly resembles Charles in appearance, finds a way to visit Charles in prison. And with him, he brings several of his friends. And his friends enter into Charles's prison cell, and they maneuver themselves behind him, and they knock him out, and they drug him. And at that point, Sidney takes off all of his clothes, puts them on Charles, and puts Charles's clothes on him. Then Sidney's Sidney's friends take Charles out of the prison. Why in the world does Sidney do this? Because he loves Lucy so much, he's willing to die so that Lucy can be with Charles, whom she really loves. So what happens in the story is Sidney takes the place of Charles. Sidney is willing to suffer and die on the guillotine, not because he's guilty, but because he loves Charles and he loves Lucy. That's a picture of the gospel. We all deserve to die on the guillotine. But Jesus Christ came into the prison and took our place and suffered and died for us. Is this really what the Bible teaches, Dave? This all sounds so violent. Well, you tell me. Listen to these verses, Isaiah 53, three to five to six. But he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How about 1 Peter 2.24, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 
Sounds pretty clear to me. Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place for us, taking the penalty that our sins deserved. Back to the hostility of Caiaphas. What Caiaphas meant for evil, God worked for good. On the day of judgment, Caiaphas is going to be judged for murdering the Son of God. Yet Caiaphas was not a puppet. He acted freely to make this decision to have Jesus Christ put to death. Yet God was in control of the whole thing. And God was using this great act of evil to bring about the salvation of billions. And if that's true, then God has the power to bring about good in your life when great evil surrounds you. Furthermore, if Christ died in your place, the guilt for all your sins, and when I say all, I mean all of your sins was paid for. If Christ was punished for your sins, then you will never, ever, ever experience punishment for your sins. It would be unjust of God to punish his son and then punish you because Christ took the punishment that you deserved, which means that you and I have nothing to fear, no wrath to fear, no justice to fear, because Jesus took all the wrath that we deserved on the cross in his body. And if Christ died for your sins, you've been reconciled to God, which means you're a friend of God. And if Christ died for your sins, you have the ability to repel the lies of the evil one. And the evil one is constantly coming to us and telling us how dirty and rotten and guilty we are. He loves to discourage us with condemnation. And when that happens, you and I must speak to the devil and to ourselves, and say, yes, that's right, Satan, I am a dirty, rotten sinner, but Jesus Christ died on the, on the cross, paying for all my sins, and right now, he sees me as a justified, declared righteous child of God who is perfect and innocent and shameless. So get behind me, Satan, and stop lying to me. That's what it means to preach the gospel to yourself. But Dave, I've done some awful things. Doesn't matter what you've done. We're talking about the divine Son of God. He is valuable enough, He is worthy enough to atone for the sins of billions of people. Why? Because He's God. No matter what you've done, if you're putting your hope and confidence in Him, you can be forgiven. Which means, when all is said and done, there are really only two types of people on planet Earth. There are those who will experience something like crucifixion for all eternity because they refused to bow the knee to King Jesus and trust him. And there are those who deserve crucifixion for all eternity, but instead they put their hope and confidence in Jesus Christ, and he experienced crucifixion for them, and they will spend all eternity in his presence. Which one are you this morning? The one who will let Christ experience crucifixion for you, 
or the one who will experience crucifixion for all eternity for refusing to bow the knee to King Jesus. Christ raised Lazarus from the dead, a dramatic historical event that led to all kinds of responses. Then a few weeks later, Christ himself died, and he raised himself from the grave, and that historical event has led to even more responses throughout church history. Only one response to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is appropriate, and it is the believing response, the response of love and wonder and praise. Let's pray together.